Welcome to the Breaking of Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. So it's Black History Month, and today is the first episode in a series of stories that are going to get progressively heavier. But for today, we're going to talk about balling. And probably not the type of balling that you're thinking about. We're going to talk about basketball. The reason why basketball is important is because a lot of people from our communities tend to go for these roles, uh, music, entertainment, and things like that, because that's all they know. And if you want to think about it another way, you have about a million kids playing basketball this weekend, all trying to get into the NBA. Or we could think about it like the NFL, since the Super Bowl's coming up this Sunday. Shout out to the Falcons. Go Falcons. But just to keep the analogy consistent and to uh, – be consistent with the the guests that we're interviewing let's think about the nba the nba has about 450 players they hire 15 kids every year so you have about a million kids trying out for 15 jobs well on the other hand the technology sector says that there's going to be millions of workers that they are going to need to fill over the next few years today's guest is mo woods he was a professional basketball player he turned into a graphic designer I mean, is now running a program called Interact Project that provides free design classes and initiatives to inner city youth. This is an amazing interview because he talks about uh, what we covered earlier in this introduction and about how he started playing basketball, why he stopped balling, even though he'll still dunk on you if you try him, um, and why uh, he became passionate about design and how he got exposed to design. Definitely check out this interview. Uh, tell your friends and leave feedback in the reviews. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archon Timor Meister, and this is the Breaking Stars Podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so today we have a very special guest. We're sitting here at Hack Reactor in the Alumni Lounge. It's about 2 p.m. on a Sunday, and uh, it's sunny outside. There's probably a lot of people uh, at Dolores Park right now, but we're out here um, speaking about breaking into startups. Uh, Ruben, do you want to introduce our guest? Yeah, you know, like Timo said, we're in San Francisco, and we interview people from all over the place, but we're here with the Bay Area native. He's a legendary designer, been playing basketball his whole life, played pro ball for about seven years, worked at several companies, tech companies, including Microsoft and Yahoo, started a couple of his own as well. And he has a very awesome story. He's going to tell you about his interact project that's helping people learn how to design. So his name is Mo Woods. Mo, can you please take us back and tell us about you know where it all started? Yeah. you know, Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. And you know, just a little bit of background about myself. Yes, my name is Maurice Woods. I am uh, a 6'10 designer. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm a native, Richmond native, Richmond, California, raised there. And I spent a lot of years as a young person interested in sports, interested in music, but also interested in art, which, you know, later paved the way for where I am now today. Yeah. And so when you were in school growing up, you know, you had this fascination for art and sports. How did you whet those appetites? I think the ways that I whet my appetites for sports and, and art and, and things of that was simply just being involved with, you know, what was going on in the neighborhood, which was, you know, everybody was playing sports. You know, everybody was involved with music. You know, it was a time when my whole hood, basically, we all were sort of involved in those capacities. And, and art was something that I did more on an individual level. It was something that I connected to personally that drove me to continue to keep doing that. And it gave me a little bit of solace in times when I was, you know, just by myself looking for something to do. Yeah. And, you know, expressing ourselves emotionally is something that we talk about a lot. I mean, it sounds like basketball was a way for you to, you know, release your frustrations or the way your happiness sometimes. But you also did that through art. What was your medium in art? Did you start with drawing or painting? Or Yeah, man. I, you know, my medium generally was pen and paper. Those were the things that I, I sort of gravitated to because it was sort of a quick, easy way for me to get things off 
my chest and out of my head onto paper. But I think ultimately my passion for art or creativity came from my, you know, my need to just understand and push my creativity to another level by taking things apart and putting them back together again. It was just sort of this fascination with how can I use creativity in different ways? And, you know, it was one of those things that I really didn't think of as being anything special until, you know, I got older and I started to look back and I think about like, you know, taking my dad's watch apart and trying to put it back together and, you know, things of that nature, like uh, playing with, uh, you know, this is going to sound weird, but playing with firecrackers and things like that. It was just always trying to understand why and how things work and taking them apart, trying to put them back together again. That fascinated me. Yes. Yeah. So at that point, did you think that you would have a career in art or did you ever envision yourself finding a career in art or you decided to pursue something else? I never took art seriously when I was, was a kid, to be honest, other than just being engaged in, you know, uh, some sort of creative uh, process, if you will, in terms of like drawing and, and playing around with things. It wasn't something that I really felt like it was a long-term plan. You know, mm-hmm. it was something that I did when, you know, I wasn't playing with my friends, I wasn't involved with sports, and I wasn't doing anything related to music. So it wasn't something that I really took seriously. So in that regards, you know, it became just sort of a hobby, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I put more of my emphasis on things that I thought that I could relate to that led to something tangible and something that I could see that worked, which was basketball. And as a kid, you're seeing basketball players on TV, you're seeing musicians on TV, and that is something tangible that you know you can do because you have the tools and the ability to do those mm-hmm. those things yourself. Yeah, and you know, seeing those tangible pathways were really important, and you started pursuing this basketball route. So kind of walk us through your, your basketball journey, like what position did you play, and how did that go? Yeah, so, you know, like I said, I'm 6'10". You know, it, it's funny because I can't even remember a time when I was not taller than everybody else, you know. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but, you know, it, it's like I've always been the, the taller person, you know, everywhere I went. And because of that, you know, I've always been involved in basketball. It's just always been natural to me. It's been always something that I've been a part of and always tried to strive to get better at. And one of the things that I do remember specifically is that Throughout my career, I've always had, even though I was always the taller person and I had a little bit of ability, I always had to push myself to get to certain levels in each stage of my career. And as I started off, you know, as as a young kid playing basketball, you know, I was always taller than everybody else, but I also really thin too. I was really, really skinny. And because of that, I had a lot of problems, you know, with physicality. It was just, I couldn't handle it because I didn't have the weight. Yep. And so I was a young kid starting off playing of that, you know, in in middle school and high school. And then, you know, in high school, I had some success there. And from there, you know, I I parlayed that into, you know, a a basketball scholarship at the University of Washington. Awesome. Awesome. So you started playing college basketball. You know, everybody that's in college basketball has these dreams. Kind of like what was your trajectory while you were in college? I think, you know, anytime you have success in high school as a player, you automatically, well, you should automatically have a dream or a thought in your head that you can make it to play professional sports. I mean, it's like as an athlete, you have to have confidence in yourself and confidence in your ability to be able to get to the next level. And I was no different than that. You know, I had some success here in college, I mean, in high school and my whole thought process going into college was that I'm going to make it to the NBA. That's it for me. You know, it's like I have the ability. I know I can do it. I was confident about it. And I was like, I'm going to make it. And there was nobody could tell me anything different. And so as I started to get to college and started to, you know, get a taste of college, I wanted it even more. But, you know, life has a way of sort of diverting you and pushing you down the path that you're really supposed to or meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's awesome that you got this opportunity to play ball and life does throw curveballs. And so we talked a little bit before. There's some concepts that that we discussed that were 
foreign to us, but can you explain like the things that happened to you that were curveballs and kind of like what that looks like and what you did to follow the path that you were being pushed towards? Yeah. So, you know, when, when I first got to college, you know, the first curveball I had was that the coach that recruited me out of high school who was, you know, was really after me and really wanted me to be there, ended up leaving. He recruited me there. I signed my, my letter of intent. And before I can even get to the school, he had left. He was gone. So they brought in a new coach and I was, you know, brought in under a, a different coach, which meant that I had to sort of find my place within this new coach and this new system. And throughout that first year, or at the beginning of that first year, I started off by uh, redshirting. And for those of you who don't know what redshirting is, if you're going to college and you're playing sports, redshirting is basically means that you are not losing a year, but you're sitting out a year and you're gaining an additional year onto that. So normally you would play for four years. Now you're really playing for five years. And that first year you are sitting out and you're just basically learning and getting stronger or, um, you know, getting better or working on your game and you're not really officially playing in any games. So it's kind of like shadowing someone at a startup maybe for a year. Yeah. It's kind of like that. I mean, that's analogy. I would say it's like, you're basically sitting behind somebody watching somebody else do the work and you're actually helping them do it. It's almost like kind of like an intern a little bit, you know, it's like I'm there, I'm a part of the company but I am not really doing anything, you know, specifically to help the company move forward other than just sort of learning and preparing myself. So when I get my chance, I'm ready to go. Yeah. How, how did that affect your initial MBA confidence? <laughs> well, I think it affected me, but it, I mean, I was young, you know, and let's face it, it's like when you're young, you, you kind of think you're invincible. And, you know, after my first year, redshirting, I was still like, huh, okay, well, you know, it's not exactly what I wanted, but I have a, still have a chance and I still have this opportunity. It was really my second year <laughs> that really was like, oh boy, you know, I, I started playing my second year and then I was not playing at all. I was on the bench and that's when the pride hits you because if you're an athlete that's had some success and now you're not playing and you're practicing every day, but you're not getting any run. You're not getting a chance to develop because a lot of the development that happens for players happens for them in games. And if you're not getting in the game, boy, you really take a hit. Your confidence sort of, it sort of does something to your confidence. So I think after my first year of actually playing after the red shirt, that's when I was just kind of like, whoa, man, I I don't know if I'm going to make it to the NBA. It's just not looking good. If I'm not even getting any playing time, then I really have to sort of reconsider my plan a little bit yeah and that's what i did so then in high school you know going backwards like you were a big fish in a small pond and then in college it was a little bit different oh yeah it was definitely different and you know when you go to college just like a lot of other people like you who have been the man in their city and you guys are all you know fighting for positions and that's when you know i won't say that confidence goes away but you learn some things about yourself and I was one of those guys. I learned a lot about myself and my ability. I didn't give up on myself, but I started to really think about, you know, my place and my standing throughout my college career. What can I make the best impact on my life during this time? And I wasn't taking school seriously. I was getting like D's and everything. And I was like literally on the verge of being out of there, to be honest. And it was kind of an awakening. It was like, okay, I wasn't playing. I was like, man, I'm not getting any run and I'm not doing well in school. Something got to give. I got to either be doing well in basketball or I got to spend more time on the school thing. And then that's what I ended up saying. Okay, now I need to get really more serious about school. And that's what I did. Nice. So one of the greatest things about college is that you get to experiment and you get exposed to a lot of other areas, classes, activities that you normally wouldn't uh, be exposed to. So how did it work out for you being uh, in college and being an athlete? And now it sounds like you're realizing that, hey, I got to actually start thinking about my future career. What was your next step? My next step was basically sitting down with my mother. And, you know, back then, you know, they didn't have any websites or any digital, you know, apps or anything like that. They had a book. 
a catalog <laughs> of, you know, just listings of majors. And we literally, we, we just went through it. I mean, it's just like, I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. You know, I spent all my time doing, you know, with sports and trying to make it to the NBA. And now I'm forced to make a decision where, okay, you know, maybe I need to be thinking about, you know, this opportunity that I have where I have a free ride to a school and I need to like take advantage of that. I can't like, like leave the school with nothing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, me and my mother, we were looking through the catalog and she found it. She was like, you know, graphic design, you should maybe think about it. I remember when you were a kid, you used to like to draw and you were, you know, love to like, you were really creative and like to do. And I was just like, yeah, I I guess, you know, and I started thinking about it. I was like, yeah, I, I really did like doing that. And that's how it happened. So shout out to mom. Yeah. Shout out to mom. You know, <laughs> she did it. She was just like, yeah, that's try that. And so I took, I, I, you know, they had this process at the university of Washington where, you know, you have 300 students that apply to get into the graphic design program and only 20 kids get picked out of that. And so not knowing really anything about graphic design or anything about this process, I just started taking this class and there's two quarters of classes. There's a first quarter, which is the first screening. The second quarter was the second screening that led to you either getting in the program or not. And so I went through the first one, got through it. And keep in mind, I didn't know anything about graphic design. Never, ever knew anything. I just was a creative kid. I Mm -hmm. used to like to dabble when I was young and I was really interested and really into it. And so I got past that first one and then got past the second one and then got into the design program there. And it really radically changed my life, honestly. Like, I don't know what I would be doing right now if I didn't discover design because that was really, in my opinion, what I was meant to do. I think I have more passion about design and what I'm doing in design than I did in basketball and sports I ever had. And so it was all, you know, I feel like fate. You know, it's like you get a basketball scholarship to go to school and then you get this a certain amount of push of not playing that pushes you to make a decision and lead you down this direction of what your real calling is to be. And that's what happened to me. Wow. Wow. And uh, so you discover your passion for art and you're still playing basketball. So what happened once you graduated? Did you have to pick one or the other or did you just kind of roll with it? Yeah. So the beautiful thing, of the rainbow of this whole situation is, is that after I was done with school, you know, I graduated with a degree in BFA in graphic design. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy how things happen. But my last year of playing basketball at the University of Washington, I actually was starting by that time and I actually was playing well. So I, at the end of my basketball career at the University of Washington, I had one more year to finish up for design school. And I did that. And during that time, I got approached by an agent. And the agent was like, you know, I have some opportunities in Spain. And, you know, I'm, I'm from Richmond, man. I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm from the hood in Richmond. So it's like, you know, what? Overseas? What, what is, man? So I really got hit with that. And I was just kind of like, wow, I can't believe it. Like Spain. So the beautiful thing about it is, is that after I was done and graduated from college, I immediately went over to Spain to play in uh, Fort de Ventura. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I think I am. Sounds good. It sounds good. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, I uh, was there and it was, you know, an eye-opening experience for me because I remember being there and just, you know, if anybody who's listening to this and knows anything about Fort de Ventura or Canary Islands, specifically Fort de Ventura, it's not a lot going on there. It's just like almost like deserted in a lot of ways. And, you know, I was coming from, you know, the city, you know, it, coming from, you know, um, Richmond and the, the culture and the, the lifestyle and the living was so drastic change for me. It was like all of a sudden I'm in, you know, Spain where everybody's speaking Spanish and I, only, I know a little bit of Spanish. I don't know a lot. And then I'm on this island, which is extremely beautiful, but there's not a lot of people there, you know, and it's like I'm driving from my hotel to practice and I'm, it's just desert. So I'm going from one extreme to another. And I spent a year there, then went on and played at another island in the Canary Islands called Tenerife. And then from there, I went and played in in Greece. 
And in Greece, I was in a city called Papago, which is right outside of Athens. And then from there, I went and played in, in France for a little bit. And then I went on and, and finished the rest of my years in, in Japan. So throughout that whole time of playing, I never lost sight of design. It's very interesting because it's like towards the latter part of my basketball career, that hunger for design was just really like really surfacing for me. It was just like, I've had all these years of playing basketball and I was just like kind of getting to the point where it's like I'm in my late 20s and I'm just like, I can kind of see the road ending a little bit. I was just like kind of getting tired of it and design was just so, so exciting to me. I was, I brought my laptop over there. I was learning programs and just doing little design things and, and emailing my girlfriend then back, you know, home, little things here and there, emailing people and sending and just working and working on my craft when I get home from practice. So I never lost that love. And I continued in sort of, I would say, work from one hustle to another hustle. You know, yep. design was the other hustle was just kind of like moving in and design was sort of fading out. And, and then that's how I made it work. And that's how it transitioned into design, really. Yeah. So you, you trusted your struggle, which is awesome, man. That's right. And so as you were going through finishing up Japan, opening up your eyes to like these different designs and atmospheres and cultures, how did you transition fully from basketball to design or, or how did you approach that when you came back to the States? I think one of the things that I brought back and used to transition from basketball and one of the things to notice is that, you know, it's hard transitioning from basketball and sports in general and particularly professional sports because it takes so much work to, and so much discipline to play basketball and play on a level where you're making money for a living playing basketball. And then all of a sudden you're moving on to something else. It just takes a lot. And you become, there's, there's a little bit of withdrawal and a little bit of, man, really, is it over kind of thing? And I struggled a little bit with that. But once I got back to the States, you know, it was like, I couldn't struggle too much with that because I got to make, <laughs> you know, I got to make some money. And I did okay over there. But it wasn't enough where I could retire. So I had to go back to work. And when I got done playing basketball, I, um, I remember I came back to the Bay Area and, you know, I was, you know, looking for work. And part of that search for work was like, it's funny now, but back then it wasn't really funny to me. I was this just, was during the dot-com bus, right? Oh, man, it was during the dot-com bus. It was tough for your boy out there, boy, because it was just like, man, I don't know, man. I, I was just, I literally... Honestly, I literally put together a portfolio package of like just like this square, like literally probably like a five by five. And I put a CD in it and had some, you know, all my working in there. And I literally drove to every design firm in San Francisco. About to make these drop offs. Oh, I was dropping them off. Man, Pete, you should have seen people's faces when you see that <laughs> a big 6'10 black guy walking through that door. They were looking at me like, what is this dude doing, man? Who is this dude? And it was just, it was just really funny, but you know, I was such in the moment at that point, you know, I was in the moment. I was like, you know, I got to make this thing work, man. I really want design. I was really passionate about it. I was like, I just got to do whatever I got to do to make this thing work. How many drop-offs did you make? I would say probably, oh man, maybe 30, 40, man. Yep. You know, it was just like, I was just in the moment, man. I would just like, I would just, cause it was very easy for me to make the CDs, you know, and, yep. and just custom made these two sheets of paper and just put them in there and I was ready to go. Did anybody think you were selling CDs and not your portfolio? No, I don't think it was that because when I dropped it off, I was pretty explicit about what it was. But I just think that the process for applying for positions is that's so untraditional. You know, yeah. like nobody does that. People, you know, look online or they like look to see if positions are open and then they apply for those positions. I wasn't doing that. I was proactive. I was like, you know what? I don't care if they don't hire me. I'm going to send them my portfolio anyway. I'm going to go down there physically so they can see my face. And I want to make sure that I am handing it off to somebody and somebody's taking it. So I just said, you know, I don't have anything else to do. I'm looking for stuff to do. And I had time to do it and I did it. And, you know, it paid off. I would say out of the 40 places that I visited, I got like two callbacks. No, it's pretty good. Percentage. And that's, I mean, you only need one. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like I did that. And, you know, even though I didn't get a position out of that, I got interest out of that. People knew who I was. And from that experience, that led to me getting to, 
you know, eventually getting to where I am now because I was meeting people. And as I started to work through things and people saw me and I was putting myself out there and I was going to events because I was just handing out these portfolios to everybody. I was meeting people and I was coming very active in the design community. And it made it a lot more easier for me to sort of find my place in design. Yeah. And so after you went through that process, you started to get those votes of confidence. You started to build a network. You know, we talked a little bit before this, but you started taking it up to another hustle and you started freelancing and working two jobs at the same time. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, after I uh, come to this point where I was using, you know, my portfolio and, and this sort of quote unquote hustle to sort of like do whatever I can to get this in front of design firms, I still didn't yield me a job, right? Like it didn't yield me a job. It basically got me to the point where I was in this this hustle mode of I got to do whatever I got to do to make it. So while I was doing that, I ended up working at Costco and I was doing that for probably like two years. And I was doing that on the side. I was working, you know, the day shift, which is like three o'clock to 11. And, you know, it was tough. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to my peeps at Costco because, you know, it ain't no joke, man. No it's like you're on your feet all day. And then, you know, you get people that are disgruntled because mm-hmm. they got to wait in lines. And so it's just it's just tough, you know, and I, I dealt with it and I did it. And, you know, it worked for me. And then on the side, after I was done doing this three to 11 o'clock, I had clients. I still knew, knew I needed to continue doing design if I wanted to get better. So I was doing that work to get some money going through the door. And then I also was late night, I was staying up late night and working on projects, you know, and then I would go to bed, I would get up and then I would go back, eat and go back to work again. So it was just like this cycle of this madness for like two years straight. Yeah. Yeah. And that experience at Costco dealing with disgruntled people probably supported like dealing with disgruntled freelance clients sometimes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, that's part of the the life of being a freelance designer is balancing everything. Right. And you you have to have a temperament. You know, it's like you have to constantly be managing clients and and constantly be trying to find ways where you can get good clients too that understand your vision and you can have fun doing what you want to do, but also making money doing that. And I wasn't necessarily that one. You know, it's like I was getting, you know, a little disgruntled because it wasn't, I feel like when I was freelance designing, I wasn't really, I can feel that it wasn't my calling, you know? And it's, you know, it's just one of those things where you really know when something's your calling and things are falling into place right. And you kind of like, yeah, this feels right. And it just didn't feel right to me. And I think that part of that frustration from not feeling right was sort of being reflected in the clients that I had and the way that I work with clients. Yeah. So there was something missing. You were meeting people and and then somebody came through and said, you know, this is what's missing. And so what did you do and who was that person? Yeah. So I had a professor in college, an undergraduate who I was pretty close with, a couple of them actually. One of them is uh, Doug Wadden. Another one is, was uh, Chris Abzutko. And those guys were really sort of mentors, especially Doug. Doug Wadden, he's, he was a professor at University of Washington. And he was, I would say, uh, one of the, I would say one of the biggest reasons why I'm here. He always supported me. And he and I were talking one day and he was just like, you know, I told him I wanted to go to grad school and I was in the Bay Area and I was looking at CCA and Academy of Art. And, you know, those programs are fine, but it just wasn't what I needed at that time. I've been out of playing basketball for seven years. I mean, I've been playing basketball for seven years. So I wanted something a little bit different. And I felt like the opportunity that I had at University of Washington was perfect because, you know, they were paying for, (laughs) that's good enough reason already, but they were paying for my schooling to go there. And it was just, you know, a good decision at that time to kind of get reacclimated back into design and learn some more things and then put myself back out there in the workforce after going to grad school. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So you, in the pre-interview, you mentioned that while you were in grad school, you started a side project that turned into something um, very uh, special to you. Can you just tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. Yeah, so the project that I started in graduate school is called Interact Project. And Interact Project, you know, it's funny because, like I said, I mean, this is this thing with fate. It's like things are meant to be, they happen. 
And, you know, I was confronted with a class that the goal of the class was to find a something related to design or use design in a way to change the world. Now, of course, everybody has, you know, their own interpretations of that idea. And in a lot of ways, it's very, you know, big, you know, it's like, you know, somebody asked you, use design to change the world. I mean, this just seems like a little cliche and corny, but I think my interpretation of that, you know, stemmed from my background as a young person and being in the creative fields now and reflecting back on all the things that I saw and learned from my time as a young person until now. And I was like, you know, I remember when I was young, I used to like to draw and I used to, was really interested in that. And there's all these careers in design and kids just don't, you know, I didn't know about it. I found out about it because I played basketball and I got a free ride to go to a school and I ran into it. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to start a program and I'm just going to start teaching kids design and exposing them to design. And it was really as simple as that, writing a proposal and for this class. And then I actually did it. <laughs> You know, I I drove to community centers to start talking to people about it. And then once I secured a location, you know, I put up a poster, designed posters and said, you know, hey, I'm having a free class, you know, kids from 11 to 14 or I think it was even 11 to 16. It was kind of weird. You know, I was just trying stuff out. And, you know, I started off at the beginning of the summer when I started this project. I started at the beginning of the summer and I had three students. And by the end of the summer, I was working with 30 students. So I was just like, oh man, wait a minute. This is, I got something here. So it just kind of developed out of that. And it all happened from that graduate, you know, experience that I had and also related back to my own childhood was really a good way for me to bring those things full circle. Wow. And what year was that? And because I know your program is still ongoing. Um, Yeah. So has it been like five more than that? How oh, many man. years? No, I've been, you know, I started Interact Project in what, 1994, man. Wow. Wow. No, no, I'm sorry. No, 2004. Okay. That's awesome. So, so it, it's over been, 10 years. Yeah. It's been a long time. I've been doing it for a while. And there's a lot of programs and a lot of organizations that are talking about youth and design, but I've been doing it for a very long time. Yeah. I've been in the trenches. On the streets, yeah. Oh, I've been in the streets, man, like advocating for this. So I'm very happy to see other organizations starting to embrace this and taking this on because it's such an important issue. And I tell people all the time, like, listen, design touches everything. You know, I was like, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, somebody's designed something for all of that. Like when I wake up in the morning, even if I'm using my toothbrush, somebody's designed that toothbrush Mm -hmm. for me. From the time I get out of my bed and look at my phone or, or my watch or it could be like the light that turns on, you know, the bed that I'm sleeping on, the shoes. People are designing things all the time, but it's become so transparent in our lives that because it's part of our, our DNA, it's part of our lives as human beings, that it's become missed. And there's so many opportunities out there for kids. And I just tell them, I'm just like, you know, our kids, I mean, minority kids, it's like, we already don't have the same level of educational experiences as most kids do. So the kids that are getting that education are not even getting designed. So you imagine young underserved mm-hmm. communities are definitely not getting it. And I was one of those kids. Yeah. So I was like, I got to do something about it. And so that's how Interact Project sort of started. And that was sort of my vision was I'm going to get design and design careers to as many underserved communities as I possibly can. Yeah. And over the last 10 years, do you have any stories of kids who, I guess, went through your program and now work in the industry as designers? Yeah, I have kids now that are, you know, it's a funny thing about it is, is that I would say a lot of my kids are right now, some of them are engineers. I know one kid is in um, Chicago and he's an engineer. And I've got uh, a couple of kids, one's at UCLA, one's actually here. And uh, I think she goes to CCA or Art Institute, and they're all doing like illustration and some design and some film and and various different things. But, you know, to be quite honestly, it's not just about, I mean, even though we're talking about design and that's sort of the basis of what we do, and that's what we tried to show kids as an opportunity or career choice, we don't force that on kids. Mm -hmm. Our main goal is is that we want them to be aware yep. and we want to give them opportunities to learn more about things. And that's where the magic is. It's like, 
if you are suddenly exposed to something you never have seen before, and then you learn how it works and you learn how it applies to you in your own life, then that gives you way more confidence and way more ability to, you know, take that career or take that opportunity and parlay it into career as if you, you know, someone who never knows it. Think of it like this. If you look in the community and you look at basketball, for example, basketball is sort of a great analogy to this because it's like, as a young person, I'm exposed to basketball, right? I see it on TV. I see it all the time. So I see people that look like me playing a sport. And then the tools, okay, the tools are a basketball, a basketball court. It's accessible. It's free. Anybody can Mm -hmm. do that, right? I can walk anywhere and I can practice. And then me and my friends can go. So I have the tools at my access or whatever I have. And then the, the other side of it is aligning it to career. So I see, you know, pro athletes that are making tons of money. Mm-hmm. I also see the endorsement deals that they're getting. And the connection of all of that makes me want to be that person. And it also, because I have access to it and it's free, I don't have any restrictions on being able to do that. Well, my whole thing with Interact Project is the same thing. So we have free classes which is an instructions part, is access to tools is like art supplies, it's the computers, it's the pens, you know, it's access to all of that. It's the classroom space that we have. And then there's the other side of what we do, which is more like advocacy. So we show other designers of color that are doing things in the field so that these kids can see. Yeah. So if you look at the difference between basketball and design, well, basketball, yeah, you have all of those and kids flock to it. You have thousands and thousands of kids. But if you look statistically at it, only 2% of kids or less make it to the NBA or make it to professional sports. 2%, Out of college, right? Just in general. Yeah. Like we won't even go to college. College is probably even less than that. But 2%. So if you think about that, you what are we doing as people? We're investing all this time into sports, into basketball, and only 2% of us are making it in. So I asked you, if I came to you and I said, you know what, you want to be a lawyer or you want to be a, a janitor, but only 2% of you, you know, are people are going to make it into there. What are you going to do? Are you going to like pursue that? I mean, so you think about the craziness of that and reason why I'm sitting here and I'm saying, well, designers, we have access to industrial design, architecture, interactive design, graphic design, you know, branding, project management, Mm -hmm. all these careers, you know, fashion, and they all affect us every single day. There's all these opportunities and we're not taking advantage of any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. If you look at the schools, the schools are like, you know, for minorities are like two, three percent, right? So, I mean, it's like, so. I look at it like that and I look at the pathways and the things we're doing to interact project as a conduit to be able to get, you know, the professional design field and these underserved communities together so that we can create opportunities for young people across the globe. Yeah. That's awesome. And there's way more seats in design versus in basketball. Yep. And you talked about several different fields within design and you know, not to go into detail about everything that you did after grad school, after the interact project, but you did spend some time at, you can mention the firms at in the traditional advertising yeah. sense. And then you also spent some time in the tech world. And then you also started your own ventures. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those and then kind of like the different roles and how those, how you get into those types of roles? Yeah. So when I was done with graduate school, I came, I was in Seattle and I uh, came back home to the Bay Area where I uh, joined a Zimmerman Design Inc., ZDI. And uh, our primary client then was Nike. And that was sort of the project that I was assigned to. And, you know, I was a junior designer there and just working away. Just, and it was a really good experience for me because, you know, we were a smaller firm. So I had a lot of opportunities to really get into the game and really, you know, get that experience and get better. And then about, you know, maybe a year into it, uh, we got acquired by an ad agency called Butler, Shine, Stern and Partners. And we were an agency, a design agency within an ad firm. So we were working on various different projects and I was still working on the Nike project while I was there. I was working some other stuff, but I really saw 
a different perspective on design in terms of how companies come up with advertising slogans and, and the brainstorming and the work and the pitches and things like that, which was really interesting to me. And by the time I had enough of that, I'd been there and did that for about, I would say probably about two years, two and a half years. I went on and worked at Pentagram Design, which is you know a very big design agency. And, you know, I was working on very big branding projects. You know, it was like, you know, St. Mary's College logo, did all that and the branding for that. Symantec did the logo for that and, and the whole branding program for that. I've done work Google and, you know, uh, experienced music design uh, exhibitions and branding projects and all of that stuff. And then later after I was done with that, I really had this fascination with interaction design. It was just something about it that was very interesting to me in terms of that was very immediate. Because one thing about branding and working on projects like that in print world is like, you know, you design something and then they go out into the world and you don't, I mean, a lot of times you don't get a chance to get that feedback. And then once you get feedback, you don't get that chance to correct it and make it better. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, okay, well, I've done this, it's out there and then that's it. With interactive design, I was really fascinated with the idea that I would design something and I would get immediate feedback and then I could turn that around and correct that and make it better, make a better experience and learn from that. And so it was just something that drew me to that. And even though I was working at Pentagram Design, I started to venture into this startup, a friend of mine who um, was actually working with me with Interact Project. Her husband was an engineer and he was starting a, a business called Convo Zine, and he, was, he brought me on as a co-founder to do all the design work. And, you know, once I was sort of transitioning out of Pentagram Design, I ended up getting really interested into interactive design, and it was something really interesting about being able to see and sort of test users actually interacting with something that I was doing and then getting immediate feedback and being able to actually take that feedback and actually do something about it that was felt a little bit more, you know, felt better to me, you know, in, in the stage that I was in, in terms of working on branding projects where you're working in print and you're designing something and the things that you're designing kind of go out into the world and you don't really always understand who's it affecting and how its effect can be modified or changed down the road in in a new type of design or process that I'm working on. So it was really that hunger for like just learning more and taking the things that I I knew in interactive design and sort of parlaying into this new career. And that's where I got introduced to a interactive design by way of a friend of mine who was working with me on Interact Project, whose husband was working on a startup called Convozine. And that startup, Convozine, he brought me on as the a co-founder to do all the design work. He was an engineer, and he had another business partner who was the business guy or the CEO, acting CEO. And so I was doing that on the side of working at Pentagram to sort of test that out and how that felt to me, and it felt really good. And as I transitioned out of Pentagram, I transitioned into this role at Convozine where we were involved in the startup and, you know, pitching ideas and working on product. And, you know, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> to be honest, I look back on it now, it's like, I just didn't know. I mean, I knew branding and I knew, you know, the visual side of things, but I didn't know all of the complexity that goes into designing a product you know, I was sort of learning on the job and it was probably the best experience that I could have really, to be honest. But it was through that, you know, a lot of things happened. So I started working on that and I would say probably, you know, year two after the sort of the honeymoon part sort of, you know, ends, I got involved in the designer fund. You know, it came up and the designer funds, for for those of you who don't know, is an organization or program that is working with, you know, designers that are looking to start businesses as an emphasis on design. And so I was the designer of the group. We got involved with the first, the first graduating class of the designer fund. And that experience alone was great. I mean, we were visiting various different startups and I was learning a lot about how other people were designing products and they were giving us feedback on our product. And I can remember 
working on a product, uh, working on Convozine and showing it to a creative director at a, a company called uh, Rock Melt. And they really liked what I was doing. And then they started recruiting me and, and asking me to come work for them. But, you know, I was living in Richmond. I didn't want to drive out to Mountain View. So it just didn't happen. And then later they got acquired. And once they got acquired by Yahoo, you know, they, uh, Yahoo had offices in San Francisco. And I look back on it now and, it, you know, it was a great decision because, you know, I was really struggling. Those three years were hard. I mean, they were really hard. I mean, we, were, we never really got the funding that, you know, we really needed. And so it was just a grit and grime push out position for three years that I was in. And then I got this opportunity at Yahoo and I jumped on it. It was just really perfect because Combo Zing was digital magazines. And then when I got recruited to come to Yahoo, they were starting something called magazines. So it was just a perfect marriage of what I was already doing and what I was supposed to be doing at Yahoo. So, you know, it just all worked out and I ended up working there. And that's how I got really into the tech space, quote unquote, was really through this startup slash experiment that I worked on that I really gained a lot of experience in a a lot of understanding and and got introduced and learned to make mistakes there. And it prepared me for this position at Yahoo that I was at and then eventually on to Microsoft. Awesome. Yeah. And we hear a lot about kind of visual design, UX, UI. There's, it sounds like there's a lot of different specificities, man. Yeah. Specificities within design. Could you go into like the main buckets and explain what the distinctions are between each one? Well, I would say that, you know, different people have different ways of explaining these, but I'll speak from my own experience. And I would say uh, I would break them down to the things that I've saw, which are visual design. Then there's UX and UI is, you know, in there too, but I, I generally marry UI and visual design together. They seem very and similar UX and to UI me. stand for? UI is user interfaces mm-hmm. designer and UX is just user experience. And then uh, visual design is, is you know, essentially graphic design, you know, digital is just another term for it. And I started off with Yahoo as a senior visual designer. And the distinction for me was, is that my primary, you know, position there was to design the visual, the way that the apps or the way that the website looks from images to layout, to colors, to typography selection, and then try to do it in a way where it made the user feel comfortable about browsing throughout the site. And also giving the app or the website a sense of quality and understanding and brand prowess. You know, like it felt like it was part of the Yahoo brand and it felt like something that was worth reading. And visual design has that sort of uh, polish to it that really when users land on a page and something's been designed well, it makes them feel a certain way, whether it be good because the design is really good, or maybe they're not liking the design so much that they don't want to even, not even interested in clicking on anything or even visiting through or going through the site. So visual design has a lot of importance on that level. Now, the UX side of it is what I think is sort of the the meat of the product. And UX design is, you know, defined in many ways, but I generally like to overgeneralize it and say that it's really about, you know, at the end of the day, we want to get users from one point to another on the app and how do we get them to complete certain tasks. But it's also, as you start to dig into it, it's a lot about looking at a trajectory, an ecosystem of this whole product and what does it mean to users? Like, how do you want users to understand your product and how you're going to get them to understand your product and how you're going to get them through the various different levels of the product? So it's a lot of planning. It's a lot of wireframing, which are basically, you know, it could be like drawing, you know, squares and lines and pointing one line to another screen that you draw out or, you know, you could do that on the computer, but it's more the planning side and understanding like if I click, if a user clicks on one thing, they're going to get this. And then it's also like, okay, if I'm looking at an interface, where should the primary action button be? Where should it be so that users will always find it and that users understand what to do on each screen? Should I be clicking a button or should I be trying to sign in or should I be trying to make a selection? What am I trying to do? And so UX designers are really thinking through 
that on a very deep level. And I'm overgeneralizing a lot of this, but in essence, that's kind of the difference between the visual and the UX side of things. And like I said, UI is kind of mixed in there with, with visual, in my opinion. And it's, you know, UI is usually like, you know, like it is user interfaces. So it's like you're, you know, it's the buttons and dials and, you know, the 3D shading. And, and it comes on a lot of different levels. But I think that, you know, visual design kind of covers that too. So I have a hard time separating out what those two meanings are. And whether or not those are the same, I kind of feel like they are, but there's a lot of, um, I would say probably a lot of UX, UI designers that may disagree with me, but I think, you know, from my experience and what I've seen and what I've worked on, that's been my experience with all of that. Got it. Nice. So for the listeners listening right now, what advice would you have for them to um, either to acquire specific skill sets? that would make them marketable so they can get jobs at startups or at big companies in tech working on the, on the projects that you just described? I think that um, the main thing for those that are listening to this right now, I would just say that there has to be a point where you have to do whatever you can to break into the business and you have to use the skills that you have to identify the skills that you have that you can use to gain leverage within the business. For me, it was the visual design. That's how I used it. I, I had always you know, been good at that. I had a lot of experience in doing that. So I used that to get into the business, you know, designing screens, and I just love to do it. For somebody else, it might be something different. Some people may, may be more conceptual thinkers and, and less on the, the visual side and sort of lean more towards the planning and understanding the system. And I think if that's what you're really good at, then you need to sort of pursue that. I don't think that, I think you have to kind of be realistic with what you have as, you know, as a designer or just as a practitioner, you have to really know what your skill set is and really use that skill set the best way you possibly can to get your foot Mm -hmm. in the door. Because the reality of it is, is that startups and even big companies, they're looking, you know, we cannot afford to have people on the team that don't know what they're doing because mm-hmm. there's money at stake. And the name of the game is they're trying to get users. We're trying to move ahead and we're trying to hit goals. And there's not a lot of time to nurture students as much. So it's like the best thing that you can do is prepare yourself and use the skills that you can to get your foot in the door. And then once you get your foot in the door, then you expand out and you you learn more and then you expand your skill set to other areas. And for me, it was visual design and then I expanded mine out to UX because I got really interested in that. But it was really me taking the visual design position that allowed me to be able to get my foot in the door and then from there sort of span out and get into other things. Yeah. So I would say that. Nice. And the, as they're thinking about how they're going to get their foot through the door, should they be working on projects that they can add to their portfolio? Also, what tools would you recommend they use? Or what tools do you use for either visual design or interaction design that they should know how to use so they're not learning that on the job? Well, definitely right now, you know, if we're talking visual design, I definitely say sketch. I mean, even UX designers are using sketch. Mm-hmm. I started off using Illustrator, you know, Adobe products. I'm sort of a diehard Adobe user and I've always have been and probably always will be. I still use Illustrator to this day. I think, you know, for some of the tools in terms of like logo design and things like that, it's still a little bit better. But in terms of, you know, web design and vector graphics and things like that, Sketch is really the sort of the industry standard that I see that people in these major startups or major or big tech companies are using in design departments. And so understanding how to use that is a plus. I mean, you got to, I mean, you really got to be able to use multiple things, but I think if you're coming in as a designer, you got to at least know how to use Sketch and you got to know how to use Illustrator and Photoshop. Those are like the three major mm-hmm. things that you got to know how to use that stuff because anywhere you go in any of these tech companies, you're going to be using one, or if not all of those, those products. And I think, you know, in terms of, preparation, it's going to take a lot of practice. Like You can't expect that it's easy to get in these places. You see people get in there and and you often say, oh, well, how do they get in there? I mean, you can't think of it that way. You have to do everything that you can in your power to practice and get better. And for me, the way I did it was, was that I took on a lot of projects and I was probably a little nuts about doing that. And 
to what degree you can do that, that's based on your own situation. But I was always designing stuff, always, always, always designing stuff and always working on getting better. And then, you know, another thing I was also doing is I was also studying what other people that were successful were doing too. And I think that's important too, because you have to be at a point where you can be doing, or at least on the same par, people that are, you know, doing industry standard work. And if you can produce that same, or at least close to that same work, then that as a goal is going to push you to the point where you can be better even. And for me, it's like, I used to always see work and I was like, man, that's really cool. I got to figure out a way to do that. So I would practice on it. And then mm-hmm. when I get projects, I would practice on that and practice on it and keep doing it and keep working on that. And then after a while, I became very good at doing it. And then once I became very good at doing it, I started getting better because then I started bringing in my own understanding and my own context and my own history of just all the things I experienced in my life to sort of involve my thinking around why this should be a certain way and why this should be a certain way. And then it became natural to me. So I think, you know, for young people that are getting into the business or want to get into the business, it's not up to the employees to necessarily come and find you. It's up to you to get yourself to the point where you are prepared enough so that when you get that opportunity, Mm -hmm. you're ready to go. And I've seen, I've looked at tons of portfolios. I've looked at, I've interviewed a lot of people and there's a lot of people that are just not ready. And I don't know if it's like they're not practicing or if it's school or whatever, but it's super competitive. And if you're not practicing and you're not working on your craft every day, it becomes really tough to get these positions. Yeah. And uh, even to this day, um, I work with, I'm an engineer, so I work with a lot of UX designers. And a lot of the time what they do is they'll pull up a similar feature on a different website. For instance, if we're working on a model that adds, allows the user to upload files, one of the first things that I'll do is they'll do market research. So they'll go to Google and say, well, how does Google uh, allow their users to upload or save files? Right. And then you start from there because the user is used to those types of interactions. So instead of recreating the wheel, you can just learn from others. Uh, and there's a ton of websites out there that have great UX and UI design. So that's great advice. So at this point in our podcast, uh, we'd like to do the lightning round. And that's where uh, Ruben, Arthur, and I will ask you a series of questions. Uh-oh. <laughs> and um, try to give us short answers, but fill it with strategies, any resources or tactics that you've used to get where you are today. So with that said, uh, Arthur, you want to yeah. take it away? Yeah. So this question takes us back to the basics. So imagine you, you get dropped in a new city. You only have $100. You don't know anybody. And you're trying to start from scratch. What would you do and how would you spend that $100? Ooh. I think in that situation, I would probably, uh, man, that's a tough one. You know, it's funny because I, I feel like I've been in that position. <laughs> Why do I feel like that? Well, I think, you know, if I have, you know, very limited resources in terms of, you know, money and I'm moving to a new city, the first thing I would probably do with that money is, you know, save a little bit for me getting something to eat. And then I would probably use the rest to probably figure out a way where I can learn or get connected to people that were doing things that I was interested in because that just tends to lead to something else, which leads to something else, which leads to something else. And I believe that it doesn't really take a lot of money to do that. It just takes an opportunity to kind of put you in the right position to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. So let's take it back to when you got registered or when you were working at your starter for three years or any frustrating situation or or something that, that affected your confidence and had you doubted, had you struggling, what piece of music, what movie did you watch, what helped you get through that roadblock? I think it's funny because I still have that today. <laughs> I still have moments where I'm like, oh, man, what am I doing? I don't understand. I don't, I'm confused. I don't like And I, I think for me, I'm religious. Mm-hmm. So I, I listen to gospel music, and it, it inspires me. And, you know, I I think prayer inspires me and I take that confidence and that understanding from that. And I use that to get me through tough times. Is there a specific gospel song? Yeah, there's one um, called Abundantly. Abundantly. Yeah. And it's uh, I think it's uh, Jay Moss, I think, is the 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 artist that does that. But it's it really brings me to a place. And, you know, I think 
it's very easy to look at our current situation, our current problems, and then you start to think about life in general and how big life is and, and all the different opportunities and things that you are already blessed with. And it gives you a different perspective on your situation. Wow. 100%. Yeah, completely agree. So the next question is, having gone through this journey, what advice or what is the one piece of advice that you have for our listeners who are thinking about breaking into startups or breaking into tech via the design route? Oh, man, I think, you know, the advice I would say, you know, is you got to have a stomach for it. <laughs> you got to, you know, you got to be ready to hear no a lot. And you, you got to just, you got to do whatever you can and whatever it takes to get that position. And I mean that, like, there is nothing easy about getting into the, these jobs. I mean, you know, I even do this sometimes. I'm always looking like, wow, man, I just understand this guy has had all the success. I mean, it seems easy. And this shit ain't easy. It's not easy. I mean, it, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of thinking. And people spend a lot of time thinking through products. And, you know, you got to be prepared. You got to, you know, do your homework. And, and it may seem corny because it's like everybody's like, well, I, I, you know, I do research and I do this and I look at that. But, you know, you got to keep doing that until you become second nature because opportunities will happen. They will happen if you stay at it. And if you know your stuff, you can capitalize on that stuff. If you're not ready, when your time comes, you miss opportunities. And who knows when you're going to get that opportunity again. So I just say, you know, tirelessly, I tell students all the time, be prepared. Make sure you're doing your homework, your research, and your learning and taking advantage of every opportunity that you can to learn more. And then once you get that opportunity, be ready for it. Yeah. And last question, are there any like online resources or books or things that you would recommend for a designer to go to as a first step or an aspiring designer to look into as a first step? You know, I've been asked that question before. And, you know, the answer I'm going to give to that is probably not the one that most people want to hear. Maybe they do. I don't know. But I personally feel that the experiences that you have getting into this business or being in this business or whatever, it doesn't come from a book. You know, and there's books I can recommend. I'm like, you can read this book, that book, uh, Laws of Simplicity. That's one thing that comes to my mind by, you know, um, I think John Maida uh, did that, but Maida did that. But I think personally, like the experiences that you have outside of design inform what you do in design. And I, I believe that because I have found that even when I get stuck on things, there's things that happen outside of design that I'm inspired by that inform the way I think when I'm designing. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of designers make is that they get so engrossed in design. It's like, I'm just going to read books or I'm going to look at design work. I'm going to do that. And it's like, all I'm seeing, it's just like, I just got to be engrossed in this design process and I got to do that. And my rule is, it's like, when I get to that point, I actually step out of that and I actually go for a walk or go jogging or do something different that's not related to design. And the subconscious mind takes over in, in a lot of situations. Like, I, like the other day I was jogging and I was on the phone with one of my, my assistant and all of a sudden I was just talking about stuff and the designs and, and things were just popping into my head. And so all I'm saying is, is that there's really no one way to get inspired for something. You know, it's like you can tell people to read books and do those things and those work for some people. But I think that you have to be able to step outside of that and get yourself connected to other things and get involved with other things that lie outside of just doing design all the time. Awesome. Awesome. And what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Are you on any social media, email, Ooh, anything like Social that? media, man. Boy, I, I'm, it's funny because I have aliases on social media that are conspicuous. Like mine on uh, Facebook is just Mojo. On uh, Twitter, I'm on Twitter, but I'm under, you know, Mo's World Backwards. So you just D-L-R-O-W-S-E-O-M. You know, at you can find me there. We'll include include it in the show notes. Yeah, and then you know, interact. I mean, I, I post stuff in Interact Project all the time. So it's I N N E R A C T Project, and I'm on Twitter on that. I use that a lot, but I would say definitely Twitter is probably the best way. I, I've spent more time on Twitter more than anything, and um, you know, we post stuff about Interact Project, and I post personal things that I'm going through sometimes. 
as well on Twitter. And it's those two handles, Interact Project and then the Moles World Backwards. Yeah, we kind of got in touch through Twitter and, and yeah, that's shout right. out to Jason Maiden. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, great story. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on our podcast too. Yeah, man. Come, to come follow up. at me again, man. Yeah. I'd love to do it. This is great. Thank yeah. you for having awesome. me. Thanks, Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.